I would like to introduce our speaker this morning. So Kristen is going to come. This is Kristen Tab, And Kristen is a North Church uh, member and has attended here for about one and a half years. But for the past 17 years, Kristen and her family have been at the downtown campus, which is now called Bethlehem Baptist mm -hmm. Church. And we're just delighted that she and her family have joined us here north. And uh, she's married to Brian, Dr. Brian, I should say. He teaches at Bethlehem College and Seminary, and he's now serving as the interim president. They have four children, ages 8 to 14. And she's also taught English uh, part-time for a while and is transitioning to now be teaching fourth grade this next year. She's also switching schools. She used to be at Hand in Hand, and now you're going to be where? At Graceway. Graceway. Yeah. And that is... That's a, that's a fairly new it's school, isn't it? It's a new school it? in Arden Hills, Chinese and English dual language school yeah. where my sons attend. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Thank you. So Kristen enjoys learning from God's Word and is really thankful, I think, for the opportunity to be with us. But I think I'm even more thankful that she said yes, <laughs> especially for this tough topic. So don't give her too hard a time, right? <laughs> <laughs> so let me pray as we start. Mm. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this dear sister, and I thank you that she said yes to come and to share with us what she has learned from your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do a transforming work in our hearts this morning. God, we want to say that Jesus is our treasure. So would you reflect that even when it comes to our checkbooks? Mm -hmm. And so, Father, I just pray that you would just be with Kristen now, give her your grace and your power, and would your spirit speak through her to point us to Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Thank Pam. You. Thanks for that warm welcome. Um, I am so thankful to be here with you this morning, and I'm glad that you could all make it. Thanks for taking time out of your week to be here. Um, when I first thought about speaking on this topic, I thought about all of the failures and foolishness <laughs> that I've had over the span of my lifetime in regards to money and wealth. Um, but as some friends were reading through this um, teaching that I'm about to share with you, one friend commented, you know, you should really open by just talking about God's grace because that is what it's about. And I thought, yeah, that's better than sharing about my failures. So I want to say really clearly from the outset that God has provided wisdom in key areas for Brian and I at just the right times. He has given us grace to cover our foolish decisions financially, and he's given us provision in times of need. And I wish I had more time today to just sew in the stories of God's faithful provision um, really have at times prayed, Lord, I have nothing and I need this amount, and God has given it from very surprising places. <clears throat> but this morning, I hope to challenge and encourage us to pursue eternal, heavenly gain over earthly, temporal gain because of God's gospel grace to us in Christ Jesus. That's my goal this morning, to encourage us in that direction. So we're going to do that by first looking at the benefits and the risks of riches, and then we'll look at the benefits and risks of poverty, and finally we'll take a look at the nature of wealth that's offered to us in the gospel of Jesus. So I'm going to pray briefly for our hearts. Lord, thank you for the work that you've been doing in my heart through this study, and would you give us all soft hearts, sow the seed of your word deep in us, and make it um, spring up new roots of love 
um, for you, for the treasure you've given us in Jesus Christ. Um, help us to look to you for everything that we need. Lord, you are such a faithful father to provide for us. Um, so do a good work among us this morning by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in regards to Proverbs, I didn't enjoy this book a lot for many years, partially because, I don't know if you can see it well, but I've got this necklace here. Um, to me, this necklace is priceless. Um, you couldn't place a value on it. One of my children, I won't say which one, made this necklace. Um, it has no real resale value. As you can see, some of the beads are misshapen. They're different colors. There's not an amazing pattern or color scheme going on here. Um, it's special to me but um, it feels kind of disconnected. The patterns, the colors don't really work well together. And that's how Proverbs felt to me for many years. I felt like, oh, there's this, these are wonderful little bits of truth, but they feel very disconnected and I don't know how to sew them together and synthesize them um, to make them make sense. Proverbs also felt somewhat moralistic to me. Um, it felt more rule-oriented rather than grace-oriented. Um, I wanted to learn about the person of Jesus and his work, and it was just harder. I had to dig deeper to find that in Proverbs. But I don't really think that way about Proverbs anymore because the Proverbs come out of God's Father heart of love and wisdom, and Jesus perfectly embodied them. He knew which pieces of wisdom to use in which situations always. And the Proverbs are kind of like... Um, a fly on the wall of history. They're making universally true observations about who we are as human beings, how we operate, kind of like Barna researchers, but without statistics and numbers. They're just saying, here's the facts. Here's what we look like. <laughs> this is how we tend to behave. And those observations don't always feel good, but they are time-trusted. They are time-tested and trustworthy. In the context of the gospel, they empower us for righteous living, and once we get past the ouch, they're kind of humorous too and very relevant. <laughs> so the conviction that we can feel when we read Proverbs about money is a sign of how much we need God's wisdom in this area of our lives. And it also points us to our need for a Savior. So if you're following along in your handout, um, I've got a fill in the blanks for you at the top there. Our failure to live wisely will point us to Jesus the perfect covenant keeper and the fulfillment of God's perfect wisdom who became poor for our sakes that we might be made spiritually rich. Because you see, our struggles with money and finances are in part related to the problems that exist with our society's financial ideals. The cultural air we live in is saturated with the love of money combined with the ideal of financial self-sufficiency. So here's a few examples I found from a Forbes magazine article. Microsoft founder and billionaire Bill Gates is quoted as saying, if you're born poor, it's not your mistake, but if you die poor, it's your mistake. The self-made man who pulls himself out of rags and into riches haunts our ideals of what's okay and what's not when it comes to our net worth. But the American ideal goes even further to perpetuate self-reproducing wealth that allows one to live a lavish lifestyle, kind of like Daddy Warbucks in the musical Annie or Andrew Carnegie, the turn-of-the-century Victorian philanthropist. Consider this quote also from American billionaire Warren Buffett. If you don't find a way to make money while you sleep, 
you will work until you die. So our culture's ideal of independent wealth even shapes our understanding of our work and whether or not it's positive or negative. So in this view, moms who work around the clock don't, but don't get paid don't really have a place. And likewise, those engaged in work that benefits society but that doesn't pay well, such as education, social services, or public servants, are at best confused. <clears throat> but scripture orients us to different ideals regarding work and money and finances. The cultural context of most of the Proverbs is an agrarian society in which wealth meant a self-sustaining farm, usually interdependent on the local community, that could um, be handed down to future generations did not refer to a luxurious lifestyle and self-made financial independence. So a cooperative farm would probably be a closer parallel um, to what wealth looked like in ancient Israel than a Forbes billionaire. I also just want to add here that the terms rich and poor, um, which had more concrete categories in biblical times than they do in our society, have fallen out of vogue in our culture. These are relative terms in scripture. So those terms are helping us to designate which side of the financial spectrum each piece of advice or wisdom is intended for. However, in our society, our financial status um, is very mobile, and so we can see ourselves as having more, or we can see ourselves as having less, depending on our season of life, or our employment status, or other factors. So as we're walking through these Proverbs, we want to ascertain, which wisdom do I need right now for this season of life that I'm currently in? Well, Scripture does not tend to view wealth as positive or negative. It treats it as a fact of life, and it observes how humans crave it, what they do when they, to get it, and then what they do with it once they have it. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. God himself is the source of our wealth. It's not our own hard work that creates our income. It's God's blessing of our work and our business endeavors. It's his blessing on our parents or our husband and their work endeavors that contributes to our financial gain. It's true that hard work will help us to prosper in the world that God has made, but how much money we have is determined by God alone. Proverbs 10.4 states that a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So wealth can be a sign of blessing upon diligent hard work. However, in the business world, we also see riches that have come through greed or cutthroat business tactics or selfish maneuvering or injustice. Why do the wicked prosper in the area of wealth? Well, the book of Proverbs encourages us to see the ultimate consequences of unjust wealth. Proverbs 11, 16 to 22 compares the way of righteous earning with unjust earning and warns us that deceptive business practices have a clear end, destruction. Those who pursue a life of humility and integrity for the sake of God's kingdom and righteousness will receive the eternal life that God has promised to those who love him. So in God's economy, there's not two types of people, the rich and the poor. Rather, there are two ways of handling money, the way of wisdom, which leads to eternal life, and the way of foolishness, which leads to destruction. 
So wealth isn't positive or negative in and of itself, but riches do come with very real temptations. One of my favorite stories about temptation comes from the children's book, Frog and Toad Together. Um, in it, there's a story called Cookies, you might be familiar with it, um, in which Frog and Toad try to resist the temptation to eat an entire box of cookies using various strategies, and of course they end up eating most of the cookies in the process. While eating a box of cookies has some obvious consequences that are attached to it, the temptations of wealth tend to be a lot more subtle. The Proverbs warn us repeatedly about placing, replacing our trust in God with a trust in our material possessions. So Proverbs 18.11 states that a rich man's wealth functions like a strong city, like a high wall in his imagination. At first glance, we might assume that the proverb is suggesting some sort of potential benefit of wealth, but it is not. God alone is meant to be our refuge and our strength. In fact, the proverb right before this one reads, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. So our security is not meant to come from our finances or our 401k, but these things could offer a false sense of security to us. And when wealth begins to feel like a fortress that's protecting us and our future, we might be subtly trading our trust in God for trust in God's blessings. Another subtle temptation of riches can be insensitivity to the poor. Proverbs 18.23 states that even though the poor use entreaties, the rich answer roughly. In biblical times, as in many third world countries today, those begging were in need of basic food and clothing in order to sustain their lives. So please note that this proverb doesn't critique the impoverished for being lazy or for using money inappropriately or for begging from others. Rather, the focus of this proverb is on the insensitivity of the rich toward the poor. While it is good to be discerning in alleviating poverty, there are helpful ways and unhelpful ways to go about that. Um, God's word is very clear on what our heart posture should be. Proverbs 21.13 states that whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. And Proverbs 28.27 reads that whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. These verses make it clear that ignoring the poor, pretending not to see or to hear them, is in fact offensive to God. Proverbs 17.5 states that whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. All people are created in the image of God. And so derogatory comments about welfare or trailer parks or lazy poor people just do not have a place among the people of God. Some of our neighbors here in Moundsview know what it's like to go without food, and some, even among our own church family, have suffered medical or other misfortune or simply lack family support. And God cares very much about their situations, and he asks us to do the same. A third temptation that can come with much money is the subtle temptation to credit ourselves with our success. Proverbs 28.11 states that a rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find him out. So a businesswoman may assume that her own strategies have brought her wealth, when in fact it comes from God. Because righteousness and riches are not the same thing, the righteous person who lacks wealth but has understanding will eventually be revealed as wiser because her trust remains in God. 
And it may not be until eternity that the righteousness of trusting God is revealed. But one thing is certain, it will be revealed. In Deuteronomy 8, before the people of Israel crossed into the promised land, God warned them not to say in their heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Instead, they were told to remember the Lord their God, for it is he who gives power and wealth. Well, the scripture does not view wealth negatively. However, it does come with some temptations. When God gives wealth, it is meant to be a blessing used to honor God, provide for future temptations, and for, or I'm sorry, provide for future generations, and for giving to kingdom work. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce, reads Proverbs 3.9. Before the Israelites crossed the Jordan River to enter the promised land, God had given them instructions on what they should do when they settled in the land that God was about to give them. Deuteronomy 26 clearly indicated that the land the Israelites were being given was an inheritance for them from the Lord. When the people harvested their crops, they were to bring a big basket of the first fruits and the first vegetables from the harvest to the priests in the temple. And they were to remind themselves in that moment that they had entered the land that God had given them. Why would God have the people do this thing? Why would they bring... Um, a basket of groceries just as a reminder to themselves. Well, the human heart, when it becomes accustomed to something, tends to feel entitled to that thing. And you may have seen this principle at work, um, even in your own family, your children or nieces or nephews. In our family, for example, the privilege of screen time, if that becomes habitual, if it's given at a certain time each day for a certain amount of time each day, then it creates this expectation, we've found, that screen time is in fact deserved every day at the same time, for the same length of time, regardless of whether or not the authorities involved have offered this as an arrangement. However, God's people were not entitled to stay in the land that God had given them, and in fact, they were forcibly removed from it after they made a habit of breaking God's covenant. And the same idea is at work here. The goal of honoring God with our income isn't because God doesn't have any money, and therefore we need to give him some of ours so his work can continue. Quite the opposite. God is the source of all the income we have. He owns the whole earth, everything in it. And he has given us stewardship over some of its abundance. And so when we're giving to God's kingdom work, we're actually just giving back to God what is already his. And in doing so, we're to be reminded that it's God who gave us what we have. This verse in Proverbs about giving to God from our first fruits involves a precious promise to us too. The verse after states that if we honor God this way, our barns will be filled with plenty and our vats will be bursting with wine. So that's scripture's way of telling us that he wants to honor those who honor him and to offer them some of his abundance. Other good uses of wealth include leaving an inheritance to our children and being generous with the poor. God is glorified by our care for our families and for the people of God and for our neighbors. However, sometimes when the pursuit of wealth becomes a driving force in our lives, it can function as an idol in our hearts. It can be a desire that rules us and is never quite satisfied. 
So the Proverbs outline some of these sorrows that can occur when wealth becomes a driving force or an idol in our lives. Fast wealth can be spent too quickly. It feels like freedom to us. Um, You've probably heard tales of people who won the lottery only to use all the money rapidly in a short period of time. Money gained quickly can run out quickly, leaving us in a worse place than we were before. Chasing wealth can cause us to make poor investments or commitments that can end in us losing money rather than gaining it. So for example, buying lots of lottery tickets or putting money down on a business venture that isn't stable could leave us in a worse place than we were before financially. Usually we don't love wealth for the feeling of cold hard cash, as Lucy Lucy would say in Peanuts. Uh, We don't care about the money itself. We care about the things that it can buy. Money can feel to us like a lamp that Aladdin rubbed in order to get the genie to appear and accommodate his every wish. And when our hearts are oriented towards material pleasures, we can easily squander our wealth in order to experience pleasures that are temporal. But in fact, money itself is temporal, and so are the pleasures that it can buy. More to come on that in a little bit. But let's turn our attention to poverty for a few minutes. Scripture does not have a negative view toward poverty, but there are situations in which poverty is a reflection of personal irresponsibility or sin. So for example, when we prefer to talk or dream or plan about our financial future, but we do little actual work, um, or when we sleep or take breaks from our work often, When we rush ahead with our ideas, but we don't take time to plan and be thoughtful and strategic about what we're doing. When we love fine foods or alcohol or clothing or eating out often and shopping too much. When we don't offer fair wages at work or we try to take um, what we don't need that could belong to those who are less fortunate than we are. When we try to gain the favor of the rich through spending money to impress them, we can end up spending money we don't have to earn the favor of people who are more easily impressed elsewhere. We women can be attracted, too, to these multi-level marketing schemes, these home businesses that promise a lot of money quickly, but they require us to neglect the responsibilities that God has given us in order to make that money. It's not wrong to start a business. The Proverbs 31 woman is a businesswoman. But sometimes the sacrifices that our families or church communities make for us to pursue our businesses just aren't worth it. I said earlier that poverty isn't necessarily viewed negatively in Scripture. Um, But sometimes we can have the subconscious idea that maybe the poor are less favored by God, less loved by him. And often we tend to talk about a person's net worth as if a person could be measured by how much money is in their bank or retirement account. And this goes against the grain of how God views wealth and poverty. So just as wealth isn't a sign of God's favor, poverty is not a sign of God's disfavor. But Proverbs states that the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Both are made in God's image. Neither is superior. There are advantages to both situations. Um, Proverbs list some advantages that come with having less money. So for example, no one seeks the favor of the poor in order to gain something from them. No one tries to threaten them or rob them because of their wealth. Some friends of ours had a really rusty old car that they used to drive downtown. I remember the wife saying, I'm so glad that we drive this car because no one will ever steal it. (laughs) 
It's better to have little with fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. So some of the troubles and anxieties and distractions that trouble the rich don't really affect those with less money, and that leaves them free to focus on God's kingdom work instead. Sometimes having only a little can fuel righteous living and helps us to avoid corrupt dealings or pride. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. So integrity of heart is worth more in God's sight than riches are. And Jesus, who embodied perfect wisdom, taught that we cannot serve both God and money. We'd have to choose one master. It was the rich man who went away sad when Jesus told him to sell everything he owned and give the money to the poor. He loved his money, but he valued it more than he valued Jesus. Now, there's also temptations that come with having less money. Um, One of them is anxiety about money. Jesus often mentioned this. We genuinely need housing and food and clothing and transportation and some amount of education. If we have a family, our children need these same things in abundance. So planning how to save money, when and how to use money, and wondering whether we will have enough money can take a lot of time and a lot of anxiety. But scripture commends saving and planning ahead. It gives the metaphor of an ant storing and saving as a model of prudent financial planning. So there are ways to handle our anxiety about money, but anxiety could also be a snare. It can take too much of our time and energy away from serving God. Furthermore, the temptation to cheat others or the authorities God has set over us can occur when we feel our lack of resources. Proverbs 20.23 reads, Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. God's word clearly disdains deceitful dealings, and it can be tempting not to report all of our income on our tax returns or to pay workers under the table instead of giving them the wages and benefits that are mandated to them by law. The temptation to spend a lot on credit rather than to pay in cash or to only charge what we know we can reasonably pay off is another temptation those less resourced face. And so I say the following to encourage all of us, no matter where we are with having more or less, it is God's job to provide for us as our Father and as our Creator. It is not our job to provide for ourselves. Our job is to seek God and his kingdom. Our job is to ask and to seek and to knock. God promises to answer and to help us find and to open the door for us. And God's generosity will become increasingly evident as we turn to prayer instead of worry in the area of finances. We can depend upon God like the children that we are to provide for our needs. And again, I wish I had time to insert stories here of times I've seen God do this. Um, temptation speaks to both the poor and the rich, and perhaps that is why Proverbs 38 through 9 states, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So we find that self-sufficiency and anxiety are at either end of the spectrum of places our hearts tend to go. Um, in regard to our financial situations. 
But regardless of how much money we have or don't have, God desires us to reflect his generous nature toward others. Being generous with our temporal wealth is a picture of what God himself has done with his eternal wealth in Christ Jesus. So if you look at your handout, you'll see the verse 2 Corinthians 9.9 printed there. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. God has loved us with a great and generous love in Christ Jesus. And when Jesus came, he chose to take on human limitation, giving up his rights to show off his godhood so that he could become human, struggle with the same temptations we do, live in the same broken world that we live in. He didn't choose to come as a king, but he chose to come as a pauper, the son of a carpenter who learned his father's trade and worked at it for the first 30 years of his life. He came to a small, rural community, not a wealthy metropolis. He loved us, and he laid aside his crown and took up a life of poverty and limitation for us. He came as a servant. He generously laid aside not only his divine rights and his royal rights, but he laid aside his very life for us. Philippians 2.8 says that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most shameful type of death that one could die in those days. The benefits of Jesus' self-giving, generous nature are far-reaching and limitless. Ephesians 1.7-8 says that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God uses the language of riches and lavish in this passage to describe the spiritual wealth he's given us. These are terms we would hear on a show like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, but here is our God offering us lavish riches in Christ. What grace, completely undeserved, from our God. So consider the trespasses we've been reminded of in the area of money, just even in this talk. In exchange for our anxious strivings and idolatrous cravings and covetousness and greed and self-sufficiency, God offers us mercy and forgiveness and freedom, and not only that, but the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, which covers all our sin. So let's take a look at the passage on your handout that um, that's written there, Ephesians 2, 4 through 8. It's going to help us to dwell on some of these benefits in Christ. I'll read it, and I want you to just circle the words that you see that are benefits that we have in Christ Jesus. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. 
All right, so what did you find there? Call out some of the benefits that you heard. Rich in mercy, yes. What else? Made us alive. Yeah, made us alive. Yes, what else? Raised us up, yes, with Christ. What else? Oh, his great love with which he loved us. Yes. What else? Yes, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. And did you see that promise at the end? In the coming ages, he has even more, even more grace um, in eternity for us. We've been saved through faith to an inheritance that will never be taken away from us. At the heart of the gospel is the lavish giving of grace in Christ Jesus. We can reflect God's great generosity to us in Christ. We were poor, we were dead, we were orphaned without an inheritance in heaven, but now we have endless riches spiritually in this life and in the next. We are rich in Christ, and that is why we give. We give to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We give to the families God has given us. We give to our neighbors, and we can even give to our enemies. Just like the early church was marked by its radical generosity, we want to be marked by freedom with our temporal blessings because God has given us an eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus that will never rot, never fade, and never grow old. Now, you've probably seen on social media or somewhere around you the hashtag blessed. And it often corresponds with a beautiful picture of someone's material blessings or maybe their family blessings or something else that's kind of Instagram worthy, maybe enviable from an earthly perspective. But when Jesus came, he redefined what it means to be blessed. Blessed, he said, are the poor not just the material poor, we've seen that poverty could be righteous or unrighteous, but the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our culture says that you are poor if you lack wealth and if you don't crave it. But Jesus said that if you are hungry and thirsty for more of him, you are rich. So you see the problem with earthly treasure is that it wears out, it corrodes, it rots, and it rusts because it is temporary. It's not meant to satisfy us forever. You've probably heard the quote by Jim Elliott that says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. God has promised us an imperishable, unfading, eternal inheritance that will never wear out. So let's not trade that in. And I want to then give us a couple of um, scriptures to end on from the book of Luke, Luke 12. Um, you'll see them printed in your handout. In Luke 12, 15 to 21, a man asked Jesus to make his brother divide the family inheritance with them. Jesus didn't talk about what was fair. He didn't intervene in the conversation in the ways that we maybe would have expected, but instead he brought out what was behind this man's seemingly quite fair and reasonable request, and he told a story. Jesus said to them, Take care 
and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The problem wasn't that the man wanted to be rich. It was that he wanted the wrong kind of riches. He wanted temporal riches rather than the eternal wealth that God offers. Right after this story are Jesus' promises that God would provide the food and clothing and daily essentials that his children need. He promised that if they seek God's kingdom first, everything they need will be provided. And then he ended by saying this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We need to reorient our understanding of what the blessed life is eternal treasure with the Lord. So in closing, I'd like to remind us of the author of these Proverbs. Solomon was a king and a keeper of God's covenant. He was not supposed to amass wealth or wives or an army for that matter, but he did all of those things. Solomon, despite his vast amount of wisdom, was unable to embody it in his leadership of Israel. He needed a savior. And as we view areas of failure in our own relationship with money, we realize that we too need a savior. So remember the initial aim that we had as you go into our small group times. Our failure to live wisely will point us to Jesus, the perfect covenant keeper and the fulfillment of God's perfect wisdom who became poor for our sakes that we might be made spiritually rich. And then on the back of your handout, you'll find the lyrics to a song that's just been a helpful reminder to me that what I own does not define me. Rather, I am defined by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for me. So you can read through that on your own time. So we disperse into small groups. I encourage you just to focus on your own heart before the Lord. God is doing a different work in each one of us, depending on our circumstances and the season of life that we're in. So let's just be sensitive to the temptation to make assumptions on the basis of our perceptions, but just to examine our own hearts together before the Lord and just to ask him what he has for us this morning. So I want to bless you um, as you go with just a short prayer. Father, I thank you so much for these women that have gathered this morning, and I pray that you would point them to you um, in small group time together now as they begin to think about the different things that you're doing in their hearts in relation to money and in relation to your gospel. Lord, would you make this time so rich and so sweet um, and filled with your gospel grace. In Jesus' name, amen.